second Bible reading this evening is from Ruth chapter 3, and we'll be reading all of it. Um, it's found on page 278 in my pew Bible. So Ruth chapter 3, starting from verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose, servant, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, friends. I do hope you've been reading uh, Ruth during the week and have come this week prepared, having read Ruth chapter 3. Uh, and so in preparation for next week, read Ruth chapter 4. Now, again this week, I got another text um, of another joke, which I couldn't work into my sermon. Perhaps it wasn't good enough to work into my sermon, but here it is, before the sermon. And the joke goes like this. What was Ruth doing in Bethlehem? The answer is, Ruth was playing the field. Oh, well, that's why it's not in the sermon. Okay, now we pray and we get to business. 
Anyhow, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us even through these historical stories of your people. Uh, we do pray that you'll teach us about you and also about ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every once in a while, when we read the Bible, cover to cover, book by book, we come across stories like this that are just outright strange and weird and almost scandalous, just like this one. And so when we come to passages like this, we read it in church, we preach on it, we don't skip it. I mean, it's very easy to skip a passage like this. What is this passage about? This whole week I've been pulling out my hair and I'm getting thinner and thinner up the top. What's going on in this passage? It's very easy to skip a passage like this and preach on next week's passage instead, which seems a bit easier. Or preach on David and Goliath. But I do hope that if you have been coming for a while, that you see our commitment in this church as a body of Christ. Our commitment is to the authority of Scripture. That is, this is in the Bible. This story, this chapter is in the Bible, not just as a record of history, not just for our entertainment, not just to help us appreciate the culture of that time and place. But this is in the Bible. This chapter, strange story, scandalous story, is here to teach us something about God. And it is here to teach us something about ourselves as well. And so is there a lesson? What is it? Well, is this story about dating strategies? This is how you go about dating. Or is this story about marriage strategies? Or is this story about how much involvement your mother or mother-in-law should have or should not have when you go about dating someone? Maybe the lesson here is teaching you, make sure you ask your mothers to be involved in the person you want to date and get their advice. Or is the story here teaching a lesson to the ladies? Ladies, you need to know that men like to keep their feet warm at night. Is that the lesson of this story? Well, let's try to make sense of this story first, and then we'll consider what the lesson might be. So what's the story? So we've met Naomi. She's the mother-in-law. By this time, she has experienced such tragedy and hardship and heartache. Husband dead. Two sons are dead. And we have to remember that grief. Terrible grief. You never forget the death of your child. But here, two children. In Chinese, there's in fact this saying, uh, that, that describes the grief a parent has when they have to send their child to the grave. That The saying goes like this, when white hair has to send black hair away. Do you get that? The older one with white hair sending their younger one to the grave who has black hair. And so we have to remember her grief here. Dead, dead husband, two dead children. But then we have to remember what we heard last week in chapter 2. She never gave up on God, despite what she experienced. Or rather, she realized that God never gave up on her. Do you remember that in chapter 2, verse 20? Do keep your Bibles open. We will go through a lot of this story today. So chapter 2, 20, last week, she said, He, that is God, has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. You see, she realized that though she experienced such tragedy, God has provided for her Ruth to stick by her through thick and thin. So what does she do now? Well, she knows that God will continue to show her kindness. 
but she doesn't just sit around doing nothing. She, she doesn't sit on her hands and twiddle her thumb. I'm not sure you do that, how you do that at the same time, but she doesn't just sit around doing nothing and thinking, well, God's going to be kind to me. Something is going to happen. What does she do instead? Well, in this story, she came up with a plan for Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And it's a very interesting plan, very risky plan, this secretive plan, almost scandalous plan. So let's read her plan. Look at verses 1 to 4. She says, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been? A kinsman of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now what do you make of her plan there? This is dating or marriage strategy 101. What do you reckon? She's telling Ruth, look good, smell good, and then go and try to seduce him, something with his feet, whatever that is. I mean, imagine if that was to happen today. Your mother saying to you ladies, I like that boy. He's handsome. He's successful. He might be 50 years old. But you go... 50 is old, right? <laughs> you go, look good, smell good, and try to seduce him. Now, I'm not sure many ladies who would like to have that type of conversation with your mother, but that was Naomi's bold plan. So what did Ruth do? What are you talking about, mother? You can't get me to do that. What about my honour? What about his honour? And what if his feet stinks? But no, instead she answered, this daughter, look at verse 5. I will do whatever you say. And then we read on. She does that. Look at verse 7 to 8 now. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. I mean, if that was to happen to me, and if it was not Yvonne, I'll be startled too. In the middle of the night, there's a woman there at your feet. Now, I'm surprised in this story. He didn't kick her in the face or something like that, in shock. And so why was Ruth asked by Naomi to do such a strange thing? Now, we don't know whether this was a custom that was widely practiced or not during that time. But Naomi was getting Ruth to do such a thing to make clear to Boaz, the man who was uh, sleeping, to make clear to Boaz that Ruth was available for marriage. It was a hint to him, I am available to get married to you. Now, now what's, what, what, what an interesting way for, for ladies to show their interest in a man uncover his feet and lie there by his feet now, yesterday i officiated a wedding and that was not the way how this couple got together that girl did not stay at the feet of the guy to hint to him i want to marry you but just imagine that guys how do you know if a girl is interested in you well if you find her lying at your feet 
And that's the clue. And girls, what do you think about that idea? To give that type of hint. I mean, forget the subtle ways that you girls go about it. You know, the, the subtle ways of telling the guy up front, I like you, or sending him a text, I like you, and with a smile and a heart. You know, th that's too subtle. That's too subtle. Try this. Make it clear this way. Take off his shoes and his socks and lie down like a dog. <laughs> no, not like a dog, just like a lady. But, but that's why when we have our sleepover here at our youth group, we separate the guys and the girls. The guys in, a, in, the, in the blue room, the girls are in the red room. You see, we don't want to create any confusion with these guys waking up in the middle of the night and some girl at their feet. You know, they have to read between the lines and get the wrong idea. Now, of course, we've got other reasons why we separate them. But here, we don't know why it was done this way. It may have been a custom. And of course, we know today even, every custom has their own, uh, every culture has their own custom. Now, when I went to Turkey earlier this year, remember that study tour that was really hard work? When I went to Turkey earlier this year, I did learn a bit about the culture there. And what, what I learned was this. The way a prospective wife would indicate her desire to marry was this way, or is this way. The guy would go off with his family to the girl's house and her family. And it was the girl's job to go and make coffee for everyone. She has to go and make coffee for everyone, whether they liked it or not, that she has to go and make coffee. And a girl who can make coffee is a good thing. Anyway, Yvonne can't make coffee, but... <laughs> but in Turkey, now the way the girl would indicate her interest in the guy who was visiting was by how much sugar she puts in the coffee. If there was no sugar, bitter coffee, not interested, little bit of sugar, it's okay, try again. More sugar, it is thumbs up. But the thing is, only the guy knows this. No one else knows this. She's serving. Only that guy knows this. And he's not meant to let anyone know. He's meant to keep it secret. And so you can imagine he's meant to drink without showing any expression. But then sometimes, this is what I learned, the girl, instead of putting sugar, puts salt in the coffee. No one else knows except him. And he needs to drink it. He has to drink it all without showing any hint, any expression whether she likes him or not. And she's watching, and if he can drink salty coffee, apparently the girl will be impressed because she will be thinking, if he can do that for me, drink salty coffee for me, then he'll do anything for me. And so that's how she would give her hint, coffee or salt. But here, in this culture... It is uncovering of the feet. And so Boaz now, though startled, he asked, Who are you? And Ruth replied, look at verse 9. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now remember last week we heard of that term, the kinsman redeemer. What is that about? He is the kinsman redeemer. Well, according to the laws of God that God has provided for his people, laws which reflect what God is like and what God has done. You see, the laws weren't arbitrary. They actually reflect God's character and what God has done as the great redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is the one who has the right and the responsibility 
to provide an heir to a deceased relative so that their land will remain in the family name. Okay, so just for example, bizarre example, but just say if we were living in that tradition, that culture, if I were to die without any children and I own whatever land which belonged to the family name, if I were to die without any children but with a wife who is now a widow, then the next of kin, the, the, the kinsman redeemer would be my brother. He would be the one with the right and responsibility to marry my widow. I'm dead now, she's free to marry and provide an heir. So that's how the law worked. That's how the law functioned. It's so that the lamb would remain in the family. And because here, Elimelech, remember him, the guy who died, he was without an heir. He's dead, his two sons are dead, they're without an heir. The land of theirs would be lost to someone outside the family unless the kinsman redeemer redeemed it and provided an heir to inherit that land. And so that was the right and responsibility of Boaz. Ruth was saying to Boaz, you have this right. You are the kinsman redeemer. But then more than that, we, we notice something else here. Ruth is connecting something else to the idea of being the kinsman redeemer. She now says to him, spread your skirt, spread your garment over me. What a strange idea. He, he's woken up, found her by his feet. Somehow his feet might be warm, she might be cold. Is she asking, spread your garment over me so that I might be kept warm as well? Why did she say that? Well, what's interesting to note here, which we don't see in the English, is that the, the word for garment or the word for skirt in the Hebrew is a word we have read already last week in chapter 2. It's the same word as the word wing or the wings of the bird. Remember that connection? Remember when we read that? Look, at, look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Remember Boaz, he said to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, that's the same word there, wings, garment, skirt, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so in chapter 2, Boaz was the one who said to Ruth, Ruth, you have come to God to take refuge under his wings. And now Ruth is saying to Boaz, well, you spread your wings over me. You be the one to provide refuge for me. You take me as your wife and fulfill your duty as the kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth is saying to Boaz, you answer your own prayer for me. You be that one to provide refuge. And so she connects the idea of being the kinsman redeemer, the one who provides redemption, and the one who provides refuge. And she's saying, Boaz, you're the guy. And so what did Boaz make of this? Now, a lot has happened in the middle of the night. Was it a nightmare coming true for him, finding Ruth at his feet? Or was it a dream come true? Well, consider what he says. It's very interesting. Another man might have taken advantage of her that night. No one was around. But Boaz, a man who feared the Lord, he instead said this. Look at verse 10. The Lord bless you, daughter. Now, that should give us an indication of the age difference. She was probably in his 20s. He might be in his 50s. 
And he goes on. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. So what is this kindness now he speaks of? Is it the kindness of warming his feet? Well, no. You see, the earlier, earlier kindness that Ruth showed was to stick by Naomi. She did that at her own cost. She went beyond the call of duty, sticking by Naomi. That was the earlier kindness. Now, what's the kindness he speaks of here? This greater kindness. Well, you see, Ruth, a younger woman, she, had, she could have gone off with younger men, the more handsome one, the one in town who has more hair, the one who might live longer, the one in the city who's wealthy. But here, she was not considering those things at all. Rich or poor wasn't part of her consideration. The younger one wasn't part of her consideration. She was making herself available for marriage to this man, Boaz, much older than her. And so what we're seeing here, we're seeing the heart of Ruth. Ruth had in her heart not her own interests, but she had the interests of the family, of Naomi's family. She was happy to put herself to be married so that there might be an heir for Elimelech, for his family. You see, that's a great kindness. She's getting married not to the one she loves, in, in a sense. She's getting married, putting family responsibilities above her own preferences. That is the greater kindness that Boaz speaks of here. And so now Boaz, with great clarity of mind, receiving the hint from her, he says, now look at verses 11 and 12. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a near kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Now, just when things seem to be going well, it's like at the 11th hour, almost happening, almost going according to plan, but now there's this big stump in the middle of the road, this big blockage. The obligation to marry Ruth rests now on another man, not on him. There is someone who's closer in relation than him. Now, you must be thinking what would have been going through Ruth's mind at this time. She's already done a lot. She's put herself out there. She's made herself available. She's uncovered his feet, slept by his side. She's done all that. Now to hear, what? I might be marrying another guy. You must be wondering what would have been going through her mind. Her heart must have been sinking now. But Boaz, he alleviates her fears. Look at verse 13. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing... As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Now reading this story, this dialogue between Ruth and Boaz and what they did, it should in fact get us to admire the integrity and the righteousness and the godliness of character of both Boaz and Ruth. I mean, the situation was quite scandalous, this midnight manoeuvre by Ruth. But you see, Ruth, she could have done something else. In the law, it, it says this. She could have 
thrown herself onto Boaz and tricked him into sleeping with her like what Tamar did with Judah in Genesis. If she did that, forced herself upon him and made him sleep with her, then he had to marry her. But she didn't. And Boaz, well, he could have at this time, no one was around in the middle of the night. He could have taken advantage of her and then just casted her aside in the morning. But he didn't. You see, the situation may have been compromising, but they were both uncompromisingly godly. It just shows their great trust in each other, doesn't it? You know, Ruth trusted that Boaz would not take advantage of her. That's why she did that. And Boaz trusted that Ruth was not a loose woman. That's why he didn't receive any weird signals from her. But now I wonder whether something as a side needs to be said here considering their character, their integrity, their godliness. It's worth us reflecting, isn't it, when we are around with no one around. Or for those of you who are dating, when you are alone with no one around, do you maintain your character of integrity, of purity, uncompromisingly godly, when no one sees, when no one is around? Would you be like Boaz and Ruth? Don't do what they did anyway. That is strange. That is not our custom and culture. Don't sleep overnight together by someone's feet. That's weird. Don't do that. But the principle is there. They remain godly. And so for those of you, especially if you're dating, will you be uncompromisingly godly when no one sees and no one will find out? Well, anyway, the story goes on. In the morning, Boaz gives Ruth six measures of barley, which she took home to Naomi. In those days, you know, it wasn't about giving boxes of chocolates or flowers or ring. But note here why she was given that. By the end of our chapter, we read that Boaz did not want her to return home empty-handed. It's interesting he said that. She did not want him to return home empty-handed. That contrasts to Naomi's cry when she went to Bethlehem. Remember what she said in chapter 1. When she returned home to Bethlehem, she said, I went away full, but I returned empty. Boaz now does not want her to return empty. Perhaps that's a hint to us that her empty days are over. So it leaves us anticipating what's going to happen by chapter 4. What is going to happen? And so that's the story. But now what are we to make of this story? What's the lesson? What's the lesson for us? Well, firstly, just like what we've been doing the last two weeks, we've heard the story, we've seen the story, but now let's peel a layer off the story, like peeling a layer off an onion. Remember Ruth chapter 1? Remember what happened there? Well, what we learned there was that God was sovereign over all the bad things that happens. The sadness, the sorrow, the grief, the heartache, the famine, and death. In all the messiness of life, God remains in control. That's what we learned in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, what did we learn there? Well, what we learned last week was that God is sovereign over all the blessings of life. All good things come from God. With God, there is no chance. 
There is no sheer coincidence. There is no such thing as pure luck. The blessings that Naomi and Ruth experienced in chapter 2, they came from the very hands of God. And now we come here. Chapter 1, God sovereign over all bad things. Chapter 2, God sovereign over all good things. Now chapter 3, what we see here is that God is sovereign and God in his sovereignty uses people to bring about his purposes. So we were thinking big picture, God sovereign over all the bad things that happen, over all the good things that happen. Now he's sovereign even over the process, even over the means. God uses human decisions and human effort to bring about his purpose. You see, that's very important for us to understand about God. God is not over there doing his stuff. And we're over here doing our stuff, but God using us through our decisions, through our efforts to bring about his purposes. This is really important for us to understand because often I suspect even Christians think that God only works through the supernatural, you know, through miracles, through miraculous healings, through the miraculous, special, supernatural gifts of things like tongues. That is how God is working. But what we need to understand here is that God works through the ordinary, through the normal decisions and efforts of people and of his people. And so when someone is healed miraculously, we can say, well, God is at work. But when someone is healed through doctors, through their diagnosis, through their prescription, through their treatment, is not God working there too? You see, God can work directly, but God can also work through means, through people, through decisions, through actions of normal, everyday, ordinary people like us. You see, we need to understand this. And, and it's only when you understand this that you can make sense of prayer and evangelism. You have to understand that God works through people, through means. It's the only way you can understand prayer and evangelism. Because why does God need us to pray when he is sovereign and he will do what he has planned already? Why does he need our prayers? Well, it's because God uses, his, uh, uses people, uses our prayers, uses means. Or, or why does God need us to share the gospel when he is sovereign and will save whomever, whomever he pleases anyway? Well, it's because God uses people, uses means, uses our efforts in the salvation of others. See, that's very important to understand. God works today, not just supernaturally, but God works through ordinary people, ordinary means of people. And we saw that in our passage. We can see that in our passage. You see, God here in our story, he didn't supernaturally in the middle of the night transported Ruth plucked her out and put her by the feet of Boaz and then sent an angel wake Boaz up and say to Boaz you man marry that girl or else and God could have done that something supernatural like that but he didn't what what did he do here well it was Naomi who had that plan for Ruth it was a risky plan a dangerous plan but God used that if Naomi didn't come up with their plan, Ruth may never have gone. And what about Ruth? She did as she was told. She went to Boaz, did that 
funny business with his feet, boldly said to him, you are the kinsman redeemer. And God used that. If Ruth didn't go boldly and stated that boldly, Boaz may never had it in his mind to pursue her. And Boaz, he had acted on that very clear hint from Ruth. He decided, that's right, he will be the redeemer. I will do it. And God used that. If he refused, if he said, I don't want to marry her, then chapter 4 of Ruth may never have existed. But do you see anything sort of supernatural happening here? Well, no. But God was sovereignly working through those people. Without doubt, God was working through those people. God was sovereignly working through those people to bring about his purposes. But now there's another layer. Let's take off another layer. What we need to see is this also. God, in his sovereignty, uses people. He's sovereign over all that happens. But he uses people who do his will. And that's what we see in our passage as well. God sovereignly, work, sovereignly working and using people who do his will. We see that in our passage. All three of those characters were wanting to do the will of God. They were wanting to do what was honourable to God. They were seeking the interests of others, which is being like God. Because what did Naomi do? Let's think about what she did again. Her plan was really for the sake of Ruth. It was not out of self-interest. She was hoping to find security for Ruth's future. She did not want Ruth to remain a widow and a child. She was acting in line with the will of God. And what did Ruth do? Well, by offering to marry the old Boaz. She was not seeking her own interest of perhaps a younger man, but she was seeking the interest of the family name. She was willing to get married for that family name. She was acting in line with God's will. And what about Boaz? Well, he was willing to be the redeemer, which, which meant that the first of his sons would not be his. The first of his sons would carry the name of Elimelech. He was acting in line with the will of God. And in the end, we'll see it next week more clearly, but in the end, who would have ever guessed that through their normal human decisions and effort, God was doing something beyond their imagination? Who would have ever guessed? Boaz would never have guessed this, nor did Ruth or Naomi would have guessed this, that through that act, through what they did, through the act of redemption that Boaz would show, that will eventually end up to the descendant of the ultimate redeemer. Through that act of redemption, God will bring about into this world the ultimate redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ, his very own son, who redeemed, we'll explore this more next week, who will redeem, not with money, but with his life. Who will redeem, not with finances, but by his death. And so today, what difference does this make then to us, knowing this story, knowing that this is how God works in the world today? Well, it should in fact put a lot more importance on the things we decide, on what we do and how we live. You see, God is not over there doing his thing. 
God uses our efforts, our decisions to do his thing. And so Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, in their faithful decisions and actions, God used that to bring about the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, for this world. And it should make us wonder, how do our decisions then, in our life, the little things we decide every single day, our efforts, how do those decisions, how can they be used by God for his purposes of redeeming this world through the Redeemer whom has, who has already come? I mean, it should really get us to reflect, shouldn't it? How are we living our lives if God, in fact, uses our efforts and our decisions? God is not over there doing his own thing, but he uses us. Just this very morning, I had a few chats, two chats, one just over there with a, a parent, uh, the father and mother, another chat in the hall. And we were just talking about life, we were both these chats. We're all so busy. You're all so busy. Who's not busy? Everyone's busy. But we had this chat and, chat and, and we were challenged. What are we doing that will actually last beyond our, our, our life here on earth? What are we doing that will last beyond the grave? I have this chat quite often because we need to understand that God works not you know, in the supernatural but through our ordinary decisions. So in the things that we do, how much of it is related to the stuff of the kingdom of God? pointing people to the redeemer the redeemer who has already come you see knowing that god is sovereign and uses our efforts that should place so much more importance and onus on us to make sure that we are clear in how we use our time our energy our effort and wouldn't it be terrible knowing that god works in the world this way using our efforts but to one day meet god with empty hands wouldn't that be terrible you know, having done nothing in our whole life nothing that could be used by God to redeem souls wouldn't that be terrible now I'll end with this story I've shared this in the, in the past so you may have you may remember this but it's an old hymn a really powerful hymn by Charles Luther from 1877 this hymn writer, he wrote this hymn after hearing the story of a young man who was about to die. This young man had only been a Christian for about a month. And, and he was sad. This young man was sad because he only had a month to live. And he had so little time to serve the Lord. But, but this young man, in fact, said, I'm not afraid to die. Jesus saves me now. But must I go empty-handed you see he's understanding how god works in this world he was understanding that god uses our efforts for his glory god uses our efforts to redeem people to redeem souls through jesus and so the way this hymn goes is like this charles luther hearing this story he wrote this hymn must i go and empty-handed thus my dear redeemer meet not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go and empty-handed, must I meet my Saviour so, not one soul with which to greet him, must I empty-handed go. Oh, the years in sinning wasted, 
could I but recall them now? I would give them to my Saviour, to his will I'd gladly bow. O ye saints, arouse, be earnest, up and work, while yet this day, ere the night of death overtake thee, strive for souls, while still you may. Do you feel the weight of that? We have our life that God has given us. He uses us for the redemption of this world. What are we doing? Well, our prayer, my prayer, is that we will not waste our life away, that we might end up with God before him empty-handed. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you show to us how you do work in this world through the ordinary decisions of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, you brought into this world the ultimate redeemer, your own dear son. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to reflect on how you do work. You use our efforts, you use our decisions, and so help us to be wise that we might not end up before you empty-handed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.